1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Insight in on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. We are joined this week by a veteran in both the world of tennis and also the sports broadcasting industry. She's worked for a lot of different networks. She was in a, a great tennis player at Duke back in her day and is continuing on in being involved in the sport, being involved with athletes, host of a new podcast. We're going to get into a lot of it. Primp's Ripperpot, Pot, thank you so much for joining the show.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh, Mitch, you have a fantastic name. I feel like it's a very Hollywood name. Have you considered getting into that space? Uh, Mitch Michaels, I feel like it's very, you know, yeah. the film's very famous. I,
1: I feel like I'm a little famous when uh, when I just tell people my name, but then, you know, I, I haven't really dabbled. I've gotten cold feet, I guess. Uh, no, but, but there's a lot I wanted to get to. Actually, first thing off the off the rip, I actually was there, it's been like four or five years ago, when they told us we're having a new anchor coming in to host some TC Lives, and then I was like, gosh, she's wearing Stan Smith's shoes, this is like a very uh, exciting day, and it was you, it was like, oh, Prim's here, this is great, I remember her from ESPN, but, so you have actually done some work with Tennis Channel.
2: I have, I have, and, uh, you know, I, I came for a short stint. Maybe I didn't make a good enough impression because I haven't been back since. Um, no, that was, that was, it was so much fun. And it was, you know, I think back to that time, I think it was in early 2018 and there was a lot going on during that whole year. I was actually about like eight months after leaving ESPN. And what I didn't realize at the time, but I was like 12 weeks pregnant. Oh. when I was doing all that TC live stuff.
1: So we had two new broadcasters so, then.
2: Yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anything that went yeah. awry, I'm really just going to blame it on Duke, right. our first one. So if there's anything that went wrong, I'm just blaming it Wait, on the baby.
1: So your, your, your child's name is Duke.
2: It is. Okay. Wow. Are you going to hold that against no, me? No, <laughs>
1: no, we're no, I just, I had to, I had to double check to make sure we know where the loyalties lie. Uh, no. And then that, and at that time in particular, uh, it was before we kind of expanded and exploded. It was the bare bones time of the smaller studio. Now it's a lot different, obviously. But your origin story—I had to start here. You are born in Mexico, Missouri. I'm probably the only person in this building that knows where that is.
2: Yeah. Do you know where it is? I like, do. Like-
1: I, I went to school in St. Louis, uh, Midwest oh. guy originally, uh, and I know yeah. the I know the famous NBA coach that's actually from there too. Don't know him personally, but I know that backstory as well.
2: Yes, it's, it, people often say home of Prim Seripapat, and then Tai Lu comes second. Yeah. I just want to clarify yeah, that. We're, uh, we're but other than Steve Weissman, he does not know geographically where specifically Mexico, Missouri, is. But he would be the other person in the building that would probably know. Right. Actually, Nick Monroe. Okay. Nick Monroe, because him and I actually grew up competing against one another in M- Missouri Valley. So okay. might, there might be a few others in the yeah. building.
1: I've done a few podcasts. I've talked to Steve, obviously, but Nick's great as well. Still, still out there loving uh, to compete. And the best thing about yeah. Nick, the best thing about Nick, is that everybody loves him. Like you can judge someone's character by how the rest of yes. their, how your coworkers feel about you. And you know, he's got top American men just lining up to play doubles with him.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, he, I've known him now was since we were, I think, 10 years old. And he I can't remember what town specifically he's from, but we would always run into each other at all the Missouri Valley Valley Junior tournaments. So he, he's just a fanta- not only a fantastic doubles player and athlete, but just a fantastic human being, too.
1: So you spent the first 12 years of your life in the Midwest before you kind of relocated down South? Was that? I did. Do you still feel like you're a Midwesterner at heart? Like what was that experience like <laughs> before you, before you were, you know, getting into big time tennis?
2: Yeah. I feel like the Northeast is starting to trump all of my mild traits that I developed in the Midwest now having lived in the Manhattan, New Jersey area mm-hmm. over the, since 2017. But yeah, I, I feel like I have roots in so many different places. You know, I grew up in Mexico, Missouri, obviously, for the first 12 years. And then I have some roots in Florida, which is where I moved to, to attend the tennis academy, Saddlebrook, when I was 12 years old. Then I, I spent some time in, South, in North Carolina college, also worked out of there, Miami. Then I moved up to the Northeast. So I've been up here in the Northeast for the past 10 years or so. So I've got a little bit of everything in me at this point.
1: Was there any, like, tennis in your family at all before you got involved like was it a, a fun sport for the family did you just kind of fall in love with it on your own how did that develop
2: yeah so my my both of my parents played they started when probably in their 30s early 30s maybe and my brother is five years older my brother nick is five years older okay. so everybody started playing before I did. And naturally as the baby of the family, I just ended up picking it up earlier before anybody else. So I had a lot of go- a lot of things kind of going for me because I started younger than the rest of my family. So I started at seven years
1: old. I mean, seven was when you started. That's kind of, I mean, that's kind of late, like for it, when you <laughs> hear some of these prodigy stories. So start at seven. Yes. By 12, you're already, you're already gone. You're gone from home. So mm-hmm. I guess quickly, did you realize, okay, I'm pretty elite at this. Like this is I'm a little better than my peers, the other kids in the neighborhood.
2: Yes, we probably knew fairly early. I had I had good footwork. I also was a dancer and I uh, did ballet seriously for the first several years, between seven and 12. So it was kind of between tennis and ballet by the time I reached 12 years old. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think I picked it up pretty quickly. A lot of people in my small town noticed that. So by the time I was around nine and 10 years old, I had at that point beaten everybody on the women's high school tennis game. So at that point, yeah, yeah. (laughs) at that point, my dad was like, okay, we might be onto something. And now we're starting to have less people to train with. And, And by the time I was around nine years old, I had started playing year round rather than just seasonally and we were driving an hour after school five or six five days a week and that just ended up being so much not only for me but also my parents and so at that point we're like we need to start figuring out maybe some other options and so that's when the tennis academy experience uh came into play
1: it's just so fascinating because you say ballet and footwork and that professional uh, boxer boxer who does like basically ballroom dancing and he's got the best footwork in boxing so there's something there uh, maybe, maybe a stigma on the men's side, we got to work to cut down because it definitely helps him. But at 12 years old, did you consciously say like, okay, full steam ahead, I'm, I'm going to move to Florida. Was there, I'm mean, going to imagine that, you know, you're close with your family and it's tough to leave home at any age, let alone before you're even a teenager.
2: Yeah, that's such a good question. I often ask that question to myself and to my parents and think about that because now getting into the field that I'm getting into in terms of just psychology and working with athletes and hoping to eventually work with different families, that becomes a question of like, how much should we push kids? And at what point are kids really making decisions for themselves versus being a little coerced? So I, I think it was a little bit of everything. I definitely love tennis. I knew I was becoming pretty good at it. I enjoyed all those aspects. I enjoyed playing tennis with my family and being able to bond with them for that. It allowed me to start traveling and meeting different people outside of Missouri. And then on top of that, my parents were also really instrumental in making that decision because, of course, they're going to know they're my parents. They, they have more of a long-term vision, bigger picture vision than I do. And so I, I would have to say it was a combination of everything. But it didn't necessarily, it wasn't an easy one. I didn't necessarily want to leave home, but at 12 years old, it's really hard to kind of recognize a sacrifice mm-hmm. that comes along with that. Like, you know, the sacrifice of, okay, this is, I'm going to lose a little bit of my childhood or a lot of my childhood in order to pursue this passion.
1: Did you feel like on the first couple of days, did you remember feeling homesick at all, or like any regrets uh, in the early going?
2: Several months, several Try months. several months. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a homebody in the sense of I get really, really attached to relationships. I love home. I love my friends. I love familiarity. So the first several months were really hard. And yeah. it was a really good lesson, though, because I went from coming from a small town, Midwest. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows my family. Being very well accepted, having a good base of friends. And then at 12 years old, here I am in Tampa, Florida, and I'm having to adjust to not one, but two schools because I went to a public school in the morning and then in the afternoon, I would go to the tennis academy. So, but, but they, did, they hadn't established a middle school yet. Um, so I was kind of having to like figure out my way through two sets of new students and, and friends. And that was, it wasn't easy. I mean, it was I an opportunity I recognized, but it wasn't easy.
1: Yeah. Even someone like yourself that kind of understands or as best you can at 12 years old, it's still like a culture shock, regardless of how prepared you think you are, that you're going to the other yeah. side, you know, going way far away from your family. You're focusing on tennis to the oomph degree. When you get to Saddlebrook, did you realize, because you can run through the list of players like Roddick, Fish, Capriati, Hingis, all these names, did you know who they were or did you just see them play like wow this is a step up?
2: Well the funny thing is if you think about it they weren't who they were yeah. at 12 years old or I should say they were always who they were but they weren't who we who they are today as we know them. Like Andy yeah. Roddick at 12 years old wasn't the 2003 Grand Slam champion yeah. and Marty Fish had not yet reached his yeah. heights. We were all just kind of like figuring our way out as junior tennis players. Now, by the time I got there, the one person who had already reached her height was Jennifer Capriotti. And I had reached Saddlebrook at a time when she was going through that really difficult and challenging intersection between her personal struggles and also tennis. So that was really interesting to kind of uh, come enter Saddlebrook into that picture. And then by the time Martina Hingis um, came back to Saddlebrook to train, she was number one in the world at that point. But but Marty and, and Andy, Andy, they were yeah. still they were still little munchkins like I was. <laughs> yeah.
1: And especially if you listen to Andy talk, he's like, I didn't grow at all until I was like an older teenager. So in a literal no. sense, a little munchkin. Uh, Martina Hingis would be the one though you think like people are going to gloss over or maybe not understand the older we get how dominant she was. Like this is 200 weeks, I think, at number one. Like if you Obviously, the Williams sisters are in a class of their own, and you have certain players. But what Martina Hingis did in singles, it wasn't the longest run, but it was as dominant as anyone in, in that decade, for sure.
2: And I think, yeah, you're exactly right. And I think that the reason why she kind of flies under the radar a little bit is because she wasn't necessarily the most overwhelming and most powerful player. She's, and she's also yeah. not physically that overwhelming either. I mean, she's like mm-hmm. maybe 5'8", which is still pretty tall, and she's really strong. But compared to the players that we see today that are six feet yeah. tall and, and uh, you know, extremely muscular, extremely fast. Right. But yeah, I mean, Martina was like all of 5'8", and she didn't hit the ball that hard. Yeah, no. but she could adjust her pace when she needed to. So she was playing some of the biggest hitters like Capriati or Davenport or whoever it was, she could match their pace. But she was just really good at, I just remember playing her, yeah. playing with her and her mom, Melanie. And she would have us do like these unique drills where we were sitting in no man's land between the service line and, and the baseline. And uh, she would have us hit open stance and we would just work on angles for like a whole hour, like not even normal baseline strokes, just angles the whole time. But that's what Martina was really good at.
1: So getting getting to hit with Martina and Capriati and I guess the guys too, but you felt pretty comfortable. Is that right? Like you were Pretty confident in yourself, like you knew it was a good a good breeding ground for young talent. But you considered yourself an equal.
2: Hmm. I mean, at that moment, there's always that insecurity mm-hmm. and that moment of shock, because especially with Jennifer and Martina. But right. the time I started playing with them, they were both at number one in the world at that point. Yeah. With with Marty and Andy, it was a little different. Um, oh, I. I just uh, released our episode with, with Andy and I mentioned in the interview, I was like, listen, this is gonna sound so ridiculous. This is no offense to you, but the fact, you know, I'm a year and a half older than you. So when I was like 13 and I was training with you, I was like, Dude, why am I on the court with this little kid? Like every single day. <laughs> You're, like, You're like, I don't see it. like, I
1: just didn't see it.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was such an obnoxious statement now coming out of my mouth, <laughs> former US Open champ that I'm talking about. But with regards to Martina and Jennifer, I had a huge imposter syndrome. And I don't even know if you can call it imposter syndrome because I hadn't even reached that, even close to that level. Um, so no, it wasn't necessarily, I didn't have the, the thought of, hey, this is where I'm supposed to belong, even though in my head, I knew this is where I wanna go. But when you you have these little stepping stones Um, throughout your athletic journey where you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm actually next to this person and hitting with them. Somebody that I've watched on TV for so long.
0: Prim
1: here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, you know, from that moment of going down there, developing your game, you got to travel the circuit and really play, experience, play competitive tennis at that level. What was being almost like a full-time, it is a full-time job, but a junior player, what was it like traveling, going to these events, playing with and against the best players in the country? You
2: know, it, it was both fun. It was also really, really hard. I think it's also, you know, when you take it to the the collegiate level too, being a student athlete is such a wonderful opportunity and privilege, but it's also really, really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a full time job, and um, yeah, I think that depending on who you ask, they'll they'll say it's the best thing in the world, and then maybe you'll hear from other athletes. I mean, I would say I would probably fall into that. That side of the spectrum where it's it does. It takes it takes a toll on yeah. your your overall well-being, you know, your physical health. It it's also a huge sacrifice from not just the athlete, but also the, the family as well, logistically, practically, psychologically, financially. So it was both fun, but also, you know, it, it was really hard.
1: Because right, you're at that level where in the junior level, everyone's competing for the same thing. Like it's cutthroat in a lot of ways because Everybody wants to go pro, or at the very least, to a big time college. And there's, you know, doing the math. There's not spots for everybody. So when you see, when at least when I see from the outside, how crazy it can get at times, it's understandable. It's like, okay, these are these are desperate people that have given their all, their life to a to a dream. That unfortunately, the way the world works, not everybody can achieve that.
2: Yeah. Now, now during my era, I will have to say that that question could go to do two of my different experiences because. Mm-hmm. Saddlebrook is one experience, and then my tennis and junior experience is one because not a lot, not all of my peers, at least from that era, went to a tennis academy. Some of them went, continued to go to their regular schools and stayed with their families, and they had access to, you know, um, local programs, and they were able to get reach a top ten national ranking and and a D one. Athletic scholarship without having to uproot the family and go all the way to tennis academy But my experience with regards to the tennis Tennis academy was it was it was just really intense. It was awesome It made me into who I am today. It was such a great opportunity. I've learned a lot from it. Nobody well I don't want to say nobody can beat my work ethic, but My work ethic is unparalleled and and in the top, you know, 10% if you will But, uh, but you know, it was, it was still pretty intense though.
1: That's the value. I mean, that's what you just said is probably my favorite value of sports is just developing consistency, a work ethic, and just, you might not be a professional at, at, uh, at any sport, but you're able to work hard because you were taught those things and learn the fundamentals of hard work was in, in that regard. In that same regard, was college always the plan for you? I know you ended up at Duke and it ended up being where you kind of got your launching pad into other things, but did you always dream of going to college?
2: No, I think I did, but I think the bigger dream, I think once you hit that trajectory, everybody always talks about going pro. Like if you're headed down this route, Mm -hmm. especially when you're spending eight hours on the court by the time you're eight years old, you're not just talking college. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think there's always the aspiration of at least turning, trying to turn pro. And then the college route has to be, I hate to say it, but almost like a plan B. But that was just like the culture that I grew up in. I think it's actually even more intense today where you know kids are specializing at a much younger age yeah. and by six or seven years old, they're declaring, yeah, I want to be an NFL mm-hmm. player. I want to be a professional tennis player. So I, I did, um, I would say by the time I was 16 years old, that's when things really started to... I really had to have some conversations with my parents, but my parents wanted me to put education first. So I got really lucky about having those role models and really pushing me towards that. If I had a different set of parents, there's a good chance I might've skipped college to try to go pro. I
1: would, I would agree with what you just said about specialization being an issue in terms of just kids kind of declaring they want to do this at at a way too young age, in my opinion. I do think, though, that college, the level, has gotten collectively better in a lot of sports, tennis being one of them, to where you can go to school and still have your pro dreams at least be amplified enough to have that opportunity. You can, you can go down the list in a lot of different sports, but I think tennis falls into that of the level's gotten good. There are good college players that are making a living on tour and, and winning, so I think that at least is a positive going forward.
2: It is. And and the landscape has really changed. It is okay. And the rules have loosened up a little bit. And there's a little bit more leniency in terms of you can go to to college for a year, then you can skip out, go to the pros, come back. And there's also the longevity, at least coming from the perspective of a female, because I think males, we always kind of saw like, okay, it's okay for you to be a professional athlete and play until 30s and 40s, however long you can do it. But for females, there was always this kind of dialogue of, well, there's definitely not as much financial opportunity. And then there was also the societal pressure of like, okay, what about having a family and also having children? And is it really okay for you to keep on playing until you're in early thirties as a professional female athlete? But I think today, as we're seeing, I mean, there's so many pro tennis players who are into the, well into their thirties. And now you look at the Williams sisters who are in to their early forties, which is awesome. So the, the landscape has certainly changed since I was in college
1: definitely has. Um, you were dealt, unfortunately, a bad hand with the injuries and all the the setbacks that you had. I mean, the the Whitney of it is just brutal with your back, shoulder, knees, everything. When did you, I mean, yeah, I hate to bring that up, but when did you start to realize that like your career was winding down and how was the, or how difficult was the acceptance of that as somebody that was as competitive and dedicated as you were?
2: Yeah. You know, my, shoulder and my knees started bothering me, ironically, around the time that I started playing training with Jennifer Capriotti. And that was around 15 years old. But the difference is at 15, those injuries, they just kind of go away. But by the time I was around a sophomore at Duke, that's when they really started coming back in full force. And I just couldn't shake them. So I would say the summer of my sophomore year, I remember staying in Durham, North Carolina, to try to push through these injuries, do PT for six to eight weeks, they just weren't going away. And so that's kind of like the last resort of like, okay, you do PT for about six weeks, eight weeks, and then we'll see what happens. And you know, if that doesn't work out, mm. operation is the next the next step. And so by August, I had to have three consecutive surgeries to my shoulder and, and both knees. I was out for that entire year. So at that point, I really started planning for life after tennis.
1: Were you able to kind of I mean, I know there's like a grief would be a way to put it, but were you able to kind of get in that frame of mind quickly? Was it a process? Is it something you still kind of struggle with? Because I know athletes consider themselves athletes like that's people that work in TV, call matches for 40 years. They're they're athletes because of what that's how they identify.
2: It took me a really long time, Mitch. Uh, I would say it took me. Had you asked me that at 30 years old, my, my, my answer would have been very different. I would have said, yeah, I moved on. Now at 41 years old and having much better context over my experience and being much more truthful with myself, I would say it probably took about 10 years before I was really, really able to let go and fully understand everything that I was going through. Much of it has to do with just how my, my lack of coping skills, my lack of emotional awareness about myself. And also, honestly, like on the surface, from a vocational and professional perspective, I immediately transitioned and be- began my career in broadcasting right after college at 22 years old. But on an emotional level, I didn't know how to process everything that I was feeling and also process the fact that I had just dedicated literally my entire childhood to this thing. And I had nothing to show for it other than maybe like a scholarship and a couple wins. And to me, it was hard for me to really justify as like, oh, was that really enough? Especially knowing that my family had made such a sacrifice.
1: So it took me a while. I think that highlights another big issue. What you said is that we, this is my, again, perspective of it. We prioritize the results so much that it's like a zero, it ends up being a zero-sum game to the point of where if you don't win, it's almost like you're taught to feel like a failure when the process and, and enjoying the ride, as they say, should be more of the value because if you look back at from your perspective now, you can kind of realize all that sports brought you, how much fun you had, just the relationships you developed from it, Or it wasn't all. I mean, obviously, competitive people want to win. That's just human nature, and there's no problem with that. But putting it all, all the eggs in the results basis sets people up to deal with some pretty traumatic uh, experiences when they don't win.
2: It does. And also when you're talking about retirement too, not everybody, most everybody is not going to go out the way they want. Mm-hmm. You know, it, most of the time, it's not always going to be voluntary. It's, is going to be an involuntary retirement and it's going to be out of necessity really. Mm-hmm. And, or even injury, but you know, it, it's, I was kind of talking about it with with Andy and we talked about this over the span of like a 2-hour conversation and it was really interesting kind of diving back into his childhood and going back and forth and discussing what allowed him to really transition and let go with tennis seemingly quick Versus me, where I really, I really held on to some things. Now, that's not to say that it sounds almost ridiculous. I'm not comparing myself to Andy. Obviously, he got to play for another right. eight more years. He won a Grand Slam, world number one, all right. of this other but some stuff. Some people
1: move but was, on quickly, and so, like regardless of your uh, level, some people can easily just flip the switch. Others, whatever it is, they hang on a little longer. And that's, I guess, that's the psychology of how people are made and how people are wired differently.
2: Yeah. And I think nurture really an environment has to play plays into how we process a lot of things, but, but having said, having said what I said about Andy, Andy seems to be in the, in the, you know, minority, I would say after out of the dozens of athletes that I've talked to, who have played at either the collegiate and primarily the professional level, I would say nearly all have really struggled at some point, not really necessarily to a severe extent, but Just had some challenges, whether it's like logistically, practically, financially, and especially emotionally in terms of transitioning away from something because it is Mm -hmm. the loss. You know, you that's as Josh Childress, a former NBA player, talked about a former Stanford player. He, you know, he said it's a relationship and something that I've been doing since I was a little kid. So, of course, you're going to feel a certain way.
1: Well, if we get to more of the fun stuff, I do have a question. How does a sociology major go into broadcasting and get that first internship job?
2: I don't know. You just forget what you majored in and you just pick something and you go with it. You just
1: go. Okay. Well, no, I mean, you mentioned right after right after college you go, you know, internship, you're in Raleigh, you're you're Raleigh, North Carolina, you're working your way up. You struggled like people and I'm always going to you're going to, you know, show support and love for the non-traditional, non-conventional ways of getting into the industry cuz that's kind of how I am myself, but how was the path like? I mean, it was you just Saw something you wanted to do and were like, I'm going to treat it like tennis, I guess. Was it the same mindset that I'm going to work my way up, start at the bottom, and then, you know, progress?
2: My entry into broadcasting was what we consider now old school,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> which also means maybe I'm like skewing on the older end. <laughs> Whereas we feel like the younger, yeah. the young, the younger folks, the entry is a little bit different because we have internet, social media, all these different networks, right? Yeah. But when I was entering, I I just went through the tr- traditional routes, and it was actually my professor who had nothing to do with broadcasting. He was, I was minoring in biological anthropology and anatomy because for a brief moment, I thought about going pre-med and I realized I wasn't smart enough. So I was like, I'm gonna forget that. And he was like, you know what? You should think about getting into television. You have a great personality, (laughs) sports, all this other stuff. i was like, okay, cool, interesting. TV, never thought about it. People at Duke at the time didn't get into communications or media. So I said, oh, I want to stay in sports. I want to get into broadcasting. Where do you go at that time? ESPN. So during that spring break of my junior year, when I was injured, I flew myself up to Bristol, Connecticut in the middle of winter in February, shadowed people for about three days and came back and I was like, okay, this is my next line of work. I really connected with it and just started grinding from that point on and started with an internship in Raleigh, North Carolina, making $8 an hour and just worked my way up.
1: I just can't get over the fact that, and I've never heard this before, someone in like a non-sports TV <laughs> field, someone in the science fields is saying yeah. you should get into broadcasting. that <laughs> That's the part of the story that's it's great advice, and he's a great scout for talent with, with doing that. Uh, I also saw that you, I didn't even realize this until I was looking you up, you auditioned for a Dream Job. This was my <laughs> high school, like one of my favorite shows watching that, and I know it was all over the place, but... I just, I I wanted an American Idol for sports and I got it. Unfortunately, you know, it didn't work out getting all the way there, but you got to the audition process.
2: I did. I got to the, out of, what is it? 10,000 contestants. I made it to the finals. So the finals was held in New York City, Stuart Scott, Mm -hmm. RIP Stuart Scott. uh, He was, he was one of the hosts there. And that was back in 2005, I believe it was, or 2006. I was around 25 something years old. It was a couple of years after I graduated. And yeah, I made it to the final 30 contestants. And I didn't make it onto the show, which was the last 12 uh, contestants. And I, all of us went out that night and partied our heads off because <laughs> we're like, that's, yeah, that's it. Like, I'm never going to have a shot at ESPN ever again. Like, I, I felt like I we had all just gotten so close and that was like, that was it. We missed our shot, but after getting fired from ESPN dream job, I then came back to my job in Raleigh, North Carolina and I worked 60 days straight and I learned how to write, shoot, edit. And then by that point, that's how I got my first like on air story to be broadcasted. And then, it, so it really prompted me to, yeah. to work that much harder and make my way towards ESPN somehow.
1: <laughs> no, it's a good lesson. I mean, everybody out here who's ever accomplished anything in sports industry, television, they're going to, nobody that I know, it's just a trajectory of just straight up to the top. There's a lot of setbacks. There's a lot of faltering and it is really a testament to how you respond to them. And you put that athlete mindset on of like, okay, I lost a match time to go back to the practice courts and work. And eventually Mm -hmm. you did get to ESPN where you had a, had a pretty decent tenure there. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just the end of that chapter.
2: No, no, it wasn't. And yeah, it it ended up working out. And it's a, really good story of maybe, you know, maybe that's the thing that I needed to, uh, work out the Kings and make myself really work for it. Because there is something to be said about rather than just getting handed an opportunity, it never really feels the same. But the time I reached ESPN in 2011, I mean, it made, it made everything feel that much more surreal and, and special.
1: More with Prims a here on Tennis Channel Insight. And, um, you know, the last four years, there's been turmoil within the industry, yourself as well, ESPN, moving on from them, other opportunities present themselves. How has it been professionally as you become more of a vet in this field, kind of finding your footing, dealing with, you know, job opportunities, jobs being taken away, becoming, you know, I guess kind of staying, uh, relevance one way to put it, but just staying active and staying in the game
2: yeah I think in the beginning was really hard. I had admittedly thought about leaving ESPN before I was laid off in 2017 but I just couldn't figure it I, I think stepping away and leaving ESPN I don't know if I would have had the gumption to do that because of its name and its prestige but you know long story short since then in 2017 it's been five years and I am I am incredibly happy I've been able to find much better balance in terms of my life in terms of professional vocational academic family personal and all these things and so i think what allowed me to do that was really finding this next this next career of mine so you know i would say i think it was shortly after that i decided to go back to school and i've been thinking about going back to school since 2015 and i left espn in 2017 so i've been thinking about it for a really long time I got my master's in education, educational school and counseling psychology. And then after that, I got a taste of it. And then once I figured out my aspirations and my goals, I realized I needed yeah. to go back and get my PhD. So then that's when I finally pulled the pulled the plug or um, to tie, decided to take that next step and pursue my PhD in counseling psychology. So right. I am now going to be a third-year doc student next year. Wow. So, Yeah.
1: Just just moving right through. I mean, and adapting to, you know, I guess following another passion, but also just rolling with the punches and and keeping it going. I do have to bring up though, because it was one of my favorite it's probably one of the best things of yours on media that I've seen. But in twenty nineteen at the US Open, when you sat down with Kobe Bryant and talked to him during the US Open desk. And I know it's it's got a different, you know, unfortunate weight after his passing, but what I just remember about that is just how the conversation was all over the place in a good way. Like it involved tennis it involved family it involved just having passions. I guess I, one of the things, I mean, obviously it was tragic what happened, but I felt that we were robbed of also him in that post retirement part of his life yeah. because he wasn't a guy that was like that when he was playing, but hearing him and hearing you interview him and, and doing a great job with that, get him to talk about interests, his family and just another sport that he was kind of falling in love with himself. I just wanted to bring that up as well. And if you had any memories of talking to Kobe and and that experience of getting the interview, one of the game's greats.
2: Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And you know, he's such a he's such a he's kind of like a a muse, a piece of art, somebody that that always intrigued a lot of people, even people beyond the the sports landscape. You know, he's so smart not just, and as we learn, not just on the basketball court, but beyond as well. And I think what made that conversation so different is because if there's anybody that was really on the path towards almost, I don't want to say perfecting, but really, really executing and taking advantage of his transition from sport, it was Kobe. And he was doing it in such unique ways. And I think what made that conversation so special was I I saw him soften. I think a lot of us saw him, saw him soften. Some of it comes with age. Some of it comes from leaving basketball. I think a lot of it has to do with family mm-hmm. and having young girls too. That will always soften you, just having children in general, but also specifically young girls. And I think that that's what I have wanted. And I did ask them questions about like, hey, would you have done this? Would you have done this project, this book, this documentary, had it not been for being a father and being a father of, you know, four girls. And he said, outright, no. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I remember after that interview, we, I think we, I somehow tweeted the video out with him and mentioned something about how great it was to sit down with him. And he actually followed me back on, on Twitter. And it was, yeah, it sounds so like superficial, but getting the follow for him. I was like, Oh my gosh, I, he's the one person that I would have loved to have sat down with. And I sent him a message, a direct, a DM. And I was like, Hey, I know you're really busy. It was really great talking to you. And I mentioned like my show and all this other stuff, but obviously we were never able to connect because a few months later, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he passed in the helicopter crash, but yeah, that was a special, that was a special moment. If there's anybody that I wish I could have interviewed, it would have been him.
1: Right. It's, I mean, again, super tragic. And, and you just, you think about how he was becoming, or he was, and it would have been better to see him be that roadmap for post-sports life because he was already killing it in such a short amount of time with his interests, what he was doing. Um, and then also, yeah, like the, the perspectives and how things change. And it's, you know, it's a good lesson to just maximize your minutes, as they say, because you don't really know how long you have. And the fact that he was able to in his sho- yeah. in his short post pro basketball career able to accomplish so much. It was, uh, it was good to see. No, I had to, I had to bring that up because I was, I mean, I was following everything he did tennis wise, just that he was at the U S open and, you know, doing the rounds, did the rounds with us, ESPN, you guys as well. It was, uh, it was good to see him involved in tennis. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That was a really good moment. Um, that was a fun time. That was the U S open right before the pandemic hit as Mm -hmm. well. And I'm sure all of us remember that and, and the Indian Wells leading up to it and, Know March 11th and all sports shutting down. It was just kind of the, yeah, it was just like the beginning of a crazy three years.
1: (laughs) How much fun and how interesting have you found the current project, the Next Chapter podcast, and dealing with the psychology side maybe more so than the sports side? This is the, this is, you know, timing is everything. This is the time to do it. We have a a new breed of athletes that are speaking up and, and understanding it's okay to, you know, ask questions and get help, but how rewarding has it been to be able to facilitate these conversations that deal more on the psychology side?
2: It's so rewarding. I mean, it's the thing that gets me up every single day. And that's not to say that my family or my kids don't get me up, but I'm somebody that's really moved by my career aspirations and the impact that I can have beyond my immediate circle. And honestly, like, you know, as you mentioned, like the time is right. I actually came out with this podcast called Inside Out in 2015 at ESPN, and it was ESPN's first ever sports psychology podcast. And the landscape, in addition to me being too green and too early, but the landscape was just way too green. And so we we squashed it after about a year. Right. Then comes Second Life, my docu- documentary of me doing my professional tennis comeback around 2017 after I left ESPN, that was kind of like one iteration, and then around 20. 19 or 2020 is when 2019 is when we launched the next chapter. So, you know, it's been, it's had multiple versions and iterations really since 2015. And it's evolved with my progression too. not only as a professional, but also in in media personality, but also as a person as well. And now after having You know, I just completed my second master's. I'm getting a master's in route to the PhD. So if I really wanted to, I could quit now and just become a licensed mental health counselor, but I'm going to keep going so I can become a psychologist. So really, I think the most, the coolest thing is really integrating all the things that I'm learning in the, in the academic sphere, and then bringing it back to the media space and now sitting down with these athletes is tremendously rewarding and fascinating. And I, I agree with you. I don't think it could have happened at a better time.
1: Well, we still got a couple years before we call you doctor on occasion. So
2: you do so, yeah. so
1: not, <laughs> not officially yet. Uh, and I just wanted to kind of circle back and, and talk about how things do come full circle. Did you have any reaction, like thoughts in the moment when the Marty fish story was coming out on Netflix, having known him and maybe had more of an inside perspective of what he was going through, but also maybe not knowing everything until the story came out?
2: Yeah, I don't think I knew. I had talked to Marty actually a few years back when I was launching my show. I was actually at ESPN. I think it was around 2015 and 2016. I had been talking about really wanting to sit down with him and do a story. I think because it was still very Fresh and new, and he was still processing a lot of the things that he was going through. It was just too early. But we had talked about some of the things that triggered it and some of the experiences that he had endured, and you know, having breaking into the top 10 expectations, having the panic attacks, and all this other stuff. So I had known some of the details of it, but to, but I think the bigger thing was to see Marty. And to hear the other details, yes, but to sit there alongside our childhood friend, more so, and Marty and Andy are much closer, and see, do it with Andy, and to, to see Marty take ownership over his mental health and the yeah. struggles and how victorious he was, I think was like the coolest thing yeah. about it. Because I had known about this behind the scenes, and I think some other people had too. But for him, I know that the moment somebody takes to the public sphere and shares their story, that's the moment that tells me that right. they are in the process of healing and really taking ownership over their narrative. And I think that was really cool to see.
1: Right. You obviously feel some pride in, in knowing him and knowing what he was able yeah. to overcome. And, and he's going to help a lot of people by sharing that story. Uh, it was It was a great documentary. And it shows that there's a price to kind of be weary of, that he worked as hard as any pro tennis player for those couple years to transition his body, to play a ton of matches, to get to being a top 10 and it comes with a price. So I think that's a good lesson uh, going forward as well.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean the, the athlete population is, is while everybody seems very, uh, you know, strong and powerful and infallible, that is not the case. These are not superheroes, even though they oftentimes seem like they, they are, but they're not superheroes. They're human just like the rest
1: of us. So if you look at the current crop of players and the current group of, you know, the top tennis players, do you like this, I guess, like where the game is going, like where some trends are going? Obviously we mentioned athletes speaking out, but in terms of maybe training or, you know, their overuse is always a big thing in tennis, what's your current perspective kind of being a little removed now of where tennis is in 2022
2: that's a great question you know i think there was a period where we we were still waiting for that next gen to come through for whatever reason we just hit kind of like a there was a period of stagnation. It was almost between like 2015 to like 2020. And I don't, maybe that that happened to coincide with some of the greats, including the Williams sisters on the women's side and the big three, big five, whoever you wanna include in there on, on the men's side. But I think as they've begun to age and experience some injuries, clearly that's opened the door for so many others. And I also think what's interesting is, is that the, the influence of the big three and the Williams sisters now we are beginning to see the people that they inspired now they're coming of age and coming onto the scene like the naomi osakas of the world so of course she's considered maybe a little bit older now but i I love it i love the the names that are coming forth i love the game the style the personalities i'm also really shocked that we're actually starting to seize are we're seeing younger players hit the scene and hit the professional tour which I thought would have been a thing of like the nineties and eighties, where we would see maybe like a 14 to 16 to 18 year old. I thought that was kind of like gone. So it was really interesting that that's, that's, that's been happening, you know, with the, Mm -hmm. um, especially on the men's side. Now we're seeing it in the French open, Coco golf. Yeah.
1: With a uh, lot of different names with training methods, uh, and you know, just general wellness methods, careers are being extended. And it, is, it, it feels more special when a teenager breaks through now. Back in yeah. the day, not to you know speak down on different generations or anything like that, but it was more common, I think, because careers just weren't lasting longer. 30 was like yeah. this mythical age of pro tennis men or women. And now it's like their they're people winning their first big titles and breaking through. Even just looking at Stan Marenko, like he didn't really break through until about 30. So I think when a yeah. teenager like an Alcaraz or Holger Runes in the quarterfinals as well, the French Open... On the men's side, and what Coco Golf has done, uh, it, it's good to see these teens and younger people break through. And I should also point out, number one player in the world, Iga Swiatek, is pro- was probably the first person with a sports psychologist that said, "I need to have this as a part mm-hmm. of my team." And what she's done has kind of directly correlated with making sure that her mental's right before she even steps onto the court.
2: Yeah, I love that. I think. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of different aspects with this next generation of of players in terms of them being a lot more resourceful and resourceful in ways that we hadn't really seen, whether it's getting a sports psychologist or nutritionist or doing different things with their training, or even if it, which can, I know I recognize can be a little controversial, but we've seen some things with, especially with Osaka, like, you know what, I'm going to take a break. And I'm going to take care of my mental health and do different things or using their platform for racial and social justice issues. We're really seeing a, the intersection different, different, um, so many different aspects of each player's lives. And I think that's been really cool to see.
1: It's been great for sure. Um, I, I just, I would love to see selfishly some American men break through. I think we've got a deep talent pool, but you know the women have done a phenomenal job and that's going to only continue. But yeah, we're, I'm still waiting for that. You know, I, I, I know... Your buddy, Andy Roddick, I, I like that he has the record, but it's been 20 years. Like, let's have another <laughs> yeah, I know, one.
2: <laughs> I know. It's been a minute yeah. now. It's been almost, uh, let's see, 2003, he won the US Open. So almost, yeah, it's been over 20 years since a North American man has won a Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. It's been a minute. I know it's time. We've been talking about this for a really long time. And I remember when I was, even when I was working at ESPN, you just like somehow asked the same question, like, <laughs> well what's happening on the men's side Mm -hmm. you know patrick McEnroe or darren cahill like what is going on in the men's side where we can see some some bigger names pop into the circle but i just think it's it's just so competitive it's it really is
1: it is it's such a global game which is great for the interest and for the sport to be popular worldwide but when that happens talent develops in other worlds of the country so it makes it that much harder Mm -hmm. for sure Uh, Prim Sripapot, this has been fun, but the last question I have for you, you, you referenced it earlier, that decision to kind of give tennis another go and come back. And I just wonder what was, what was the goal? What were you trying to, uh, you know, accomplish, prove to yourself? And why did you decide after, uh, a, a breakup that had to be somewhat traumatic, what was the decision process like to pick up a racket? What were you trying to uh, accomplish? Closure.
2: closure. One word, Closure. Everybody needs closure. And through that process, I realized that I hadn't processed my emotions and saying goodbye, I hadn't allowed myself to grieve. And I also have never got to say goodbye to the one thing, my really, my first true love. And so I think going back and and leaving sport the way I wanted to was was really important. And I just happened to be in a point in time where I had the resources to do it. I'm so glad and grateful I did. And so if I would share my experience with that, it's like closure is a feeling. It's not a win. It's not any sort of, uh, you know, you can't attribute it to results. It just has to be a feeling. And I didn't win a lot, but at least I went back out and I played some professional tournaments. And I, and I just went out the way I wanted to go out. So that was it.
1: Another lesson to... You know, it's never too late to, again, not just tennis, but go back to school, do certain things, switch it up, yeah, um, and, and try to find peace any way you can. I think it's good, and I think that this lane that you're in right now is a new one. It's definitely of interest and popular uh, discourse, and uh, you have the perspective of not just being an academic type, also being an athlete, being able to balance both of those perspectives that usually mm-hmm. in the industry people don't have.
2: Thank you so much. Well, it's been so rewarding and thank you for giving me the platform to talk about it and, and talk about all these, all these concepts. And, um, you know, because I think a lot of the topics that we're talking about, discussion is really important and, and having the right discussion. So I appreciate you doing the good work.
1: Thank you so much for joining Tennis Channel Inside And In. we'll have to do this again at some point. Um, you know, I know you're, you've got a lot of uh, Duke basketball to keep up on going forward, <laughs> but so I'll try not to do it during basketball season, but uh, thank you so much <laughs> yeah. for joining the show. Really a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Awesome. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you again to Prim Serippapot for appearing on Tennis Channel Inside In. And make sure you check out her podcast, The Next Chapter with Prim Serippapot as she explores what happens to an athlete as they embark on a new chapter in their lives, one that no longer involves sport. Prim is a uh, model of consistency for what to do with that next chapter. So uh, again, thank you to Prim. It was very fun, fascinating to learn about her journey. She's as uh, nice as you can imagine, and uh, we'll have to do this again for sure. But thank you again to Prim. And your reminder that you can catch every episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast where you will find the entire catalog of this and every show on our esteemed network. Next week, we return to talk Wimbledon as it is right around the corner, almost here, what is going to be on deck at the All England Club. I'll break all that down with our panel of experts. It's going to be a fun couple weeks in England. For Prim pot I am Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside, and we will see you next week.